Well, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the Hunterian Museum and the Royal College of Surgeons. It's uh, nice to see you all here, especially on a Friday night, uh, coming to listen to our, our lecture. Um, we've organised this as part of National Science and Engineering Week, which runs until um, a week on Sunday. Um, and there's lots of activities going on across London. So um, I ho do hope you have a chance to, to look at some of the other things that are going on across the city and some really interesting activities that you can participate in. Um, before I introduce tonight's speaker, just a few housekeeping notes. Um, if you could turn off your mobile phones and pages, I'm sure that uh, our speaker would be very grateful and the rest of the audience here. Um, should the fire alarm ring, then um, myself and my colleagues from the museum will escort you out of the building safely. Um, and if anyone did need to use the uh, facilities available during the lecture, if you could use the entrance or exit at the back of the room, then that would be uh, uh, much appreciated. And the toilets are just here on the ground floor. So um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Volrath to speak this evening. Um, and it's very much a part of the exhibition that I hope some of you have had a chance to uh, look at in the museum, um, Inside Out. And I'll work with Angela Palmer that we're inviting Professor Volrath this evening. Um, he is a zoologist and an ev evolutionary biologist. He graduated uh, from the university in Freiburg in Germany and has worked um, in research and field work in Panama and Papua New Guinea. He came to work in Oxford and then Switzerland, Denmark, before coming back to this country to uh, work again at the University in Oxford, where he is now the uh, visiting research professor in the Department of Zoology. And he's part of the Oxford Silk Group. And it's very much in that capacity that we've asked him this evening to come and speak on secrets of the spider web. So, Professor Volrath, thank you. Great. Let's sort this out. Thank, thank you, Jane. That's very kind. I'm very pleased to be here. I've, I've seen my evaluation sheet, so I put this here, and I remember. I've all, also been warned that uh, the audience is quite diverse. So I hope I can satisfy most of you. Uh, I will at the beginning talk uh, about the webs, the spider's webs, and then uh, about the silk, and then a little bit about the uses, the, the, the medical uses of silk. Let me see whether I can go about, you know, the secret of the spider's web, of course, is silk. Um, silk is an extremely interesting material, and spider silk is particularly interesting. But before I talk about spider silk, I just walk back a little bit and uh, look at silkworm silk. Now, silkworm silk's been around. It's probably one of the oldest man-made, if you wish, materials. It's been around for about uh, 6,000 years, and the silkworms were harvested and bred about 6,000 years ago. And they're, I mean, there's commercial silkworms are extremely different from wild silkworms. And uh, there's the market still around 100,000 ton a year of this material, and you still find it in the uh, medical field. It is quite an important suture material. It's getting less and less important now, but it is still used quite a lot. Now, here you see a silkworm. Uh, this is the gland inside. Uh, this is the, uh, the moth that makes this. Uh, so the, the worm that makes the moth, 
near the eggs that make the worm. There's the gland. You can actually, anybody who fishes in the olden days, I mean, fishing, like, like fishing. In the olden days, if you make what they called gut cast, you, take, you buy these worms, you slit them open with your fishing knife, you take out this gland. It's actually literally this size. You pull it through your teeth, and you pull a few of them, and then you make a, a, a yarn with it. Uh, that was only suppl uh, um, supplanted by, by nylon fibers. So until quite recently, you made your own for fly fishing casts with this uh, material. It's an extremely good material. Just to show you, the, the uh, eggs laid on a leaf, the larvae eat leaves, eventually they pupate, and then they make the cocoon. Now here you have a cocoon. You can see the size of it. And if you look, if you take a single fiber and look at it, then you see that in the fiber there are two uh, brins, this thing is called a bave, glued together by sericin. Now, this sericin is quite nasty. It's very toxic. Uh, the reason for it to be toxic is obvious, because this is an effect in egg case. Inside lives the, the worm that develops, and it has to be protected. And bacteria shouldn't go, nothing should get in. But this is also a suture material, so this has to be washed off. For clothing, it has to be washed off, but even more for suture materials, because this is toxic and it has pretty strong reaction. But there's something else that's wrong with this particular type of silk. Um, the worm spins in a figure of eight, up and down and up and down throughout this whole cocoon, and there are weak points on the corners, because it is not a material that has to function under tensile strength. It's a material that has to function as part of a composite, very different uh, material qualities. But we, of course, when we take it out, we want to use it as a material under tensile strengths. It has to be strong throughout, whereas the worm puts in weak points every section, lots of them, as you can see. And they're real serious weak points in the turning. Um, now, that gives problems. And just very briefly, uh, to compare the cocoon silk, this is good cocoon silk which you buy, um, you know, for ties and things. Um, that's the st strain characteristic. You, know, you stretch it with a given force. So it's, it's a stress-strain characteristic, the force elongation curve, in effect. This is spider silk, much, much, much stronger. And the area under the curve, this area here, gives you the toughness of the material. Spider silk is a huge area, very, very tough material. This is the silk. The cocoon silk, if you take it from the cocoon, but if you take a worm in your hand and you make sure that its nippers can't cut the thread because it, it spins through its mouth and you pull it, then so it doesn't have the weak points, then the material properties actually go up quite a lot, depending on how fast you spin it, reel it. If you reel it slowly, faster, faster, and much faster, the curve changes. And as you will see, that's the same happens to spider silk, only it happens up here somewhere. The same is true for polymers, for everything. Spinning, it is a spun material. So the material of the silkworm itself is not all that different from spider silk. It is different, but it's not as bad as it is if you just buy it in the shop. If you make it, you can actually make it much better. And you will see during my talk why this is actually quite important, or could be potentially important. Now let's go to the, the creature we're going to talk about, which is the spider. You know the web, and these are the animals we, 
we study, and I studied for quite a long time, before I got interested actually in the material, I was interested in the behavior and the evolution of the behavior that makes these structures and the arms race of the spider with the flies uh, that forced it to make this incredibly highly designed and engineered structures. And I will show you how the spider's web works and why it is different uh, from uh, a silkworm. <coughs> Obviously, the web is there to catch flies. And as I said, it's an arms race. They're both living creatures. The fly doesn't want to be eaten, so it finds ways to not be eaten. And the spider needs to eat, so it finds ways to catch. Of course, in an arms race, you very quickly uh, push yourself forward. You have to, otherwise you go extinct. And this arms race between the spider and the fly has been going on before the fly actually existed. The ancestors of the flies couldn't even fly. And we think that the flies can fly because the spider drove them into the air. Um, it's been going on for about 400 million years. So the material is really extremely well adapted material. You can model the web, and I will briefly show you what that might tell us, and see how localized the forces are. We, we're shooting a, a prey in here. This is actually the same if we take a real web, turn it sideways, and shoot little, you, know, you can buy these little cannons in, in shops, and then you put a little styrofoam bead in there that you can get from a beanbag. You slit open the beanbag somewhere in the house, take out a, a bead, put it in a bullet, and shoot it in the web, and you get really nice uh, little distributions of uh, forces. Uh, or you can shoot a bullet in there. <laughs> but that's effectively what it is. The fly for the web is like a bullet. Uh, it's actually m quite sophisticated. And I will briefly talk about how the web does it. But it, what it does is affect the same thing that you find under the deck of an aircraft carrier, where the kinetic energy of the missile, or in this case the plane, has to be absorbed. Uh, it can't be a rubber band because it would store it temporarily, and then it would flip the plane back out, backwards. So it doesn't work like that. It really has to deal with the kinetic energy of the impact. And it does it through a sophisticated set of hydraulics underneath, huge. And the spider does something very similar, but on a micro scale. And I will briefly talk about that. Uh, now, I just here's again this picture that I showed you. It's a Dyna 3D simulation actually using sort of a finite element analysis. That's what, what uh, people do if they design bridges. Actually, this work we did together with Ov Arab Partners, a, a big building company. Um, and we just used their program. They allowed us to, to rewrite it a little bit. And here you see an impact of uh, a simulated prey. But we modeled this based on all the right mechanical properties of the material, the right geometry of the web, and we actually truthed it by looking at web sideways and filming it. You see how quickly that was, very fast, it went and it balanced it out. But then we studied it in some more detail because we began to understand we didn't really know exactly what was going on, and I will show you uh, another model that we did. And here we just laid the web sideways, and we just plugged it with a little hook. You see how localized the forces are. It doesn't really go over the whole web. It's really local. The, in, the energy of the prey is absorbed by the structure very locally. And we only found this out, this model, after a mistake that we made. And I will show you, before we came to this model, how we modeled it and what it looked like. 
This was our sort of first detailed simulation. And now you see how the forces distribute through the web. It, the web starts oscillating, going bigger and bigger, and eventually it broke. And the difference between that one and that model was that here we have no air resistance. Because the line, the, the threads are so fine, you have laminar flow over the threads, and therefore the whole web acts like a sail. And a lot of the energy of the prey impact is actually absorbed by the web pushing through the air. So it's quite an interesting system that the animal has evolved. But of course, it has disadvantages, which is, of course, when the wind blows, the web will blow out. And if you look outside, you'll see that spiders will take the web down when it gets too windy. Now, many people think that you could use spider silk as a flak jacket. I mean, it's a big thing. You always hear it in them. It's perfect stuff because it's so incredibly tough, and I will show you how tough it really is. However, it would work as a flak jacket, but it would catch the bullet way past your body. They would go right through, and then it would catch the bullet, but not where it has to do it because the kinetic energy is absorbed by extension. The thing really extends unless it's in the web and the lines are fine, and it can use the, the wind pressure, the wind resistance, as it were. So it's not good material for this, but it's extremely good material for biomedical use, and I will talk about that at the end of the talk. Now, it, the web is behavior, and I will very briefly show you. So it's engineering, because we're talking about science and engineering this week. The web is actually very cleverly engineered. Not just the silk is very clever material, but the engineering of the web itself. Here what you see is the gray lines are the spider walking around, and the black lines are the threads it puts. And you can see there are lots of detours. It walks around, and then it pulls the thread tight. And suddenly it moved, actually, the center of the web down, away. First it was a bridge, it moved it down. So now it puts in all its little spokes, walking all these detours. And it, the, the angles are very accurate, so it's extremely clever the way it does it. Then it builds a spiral from the inside out. That's just a scaffolding spiral to make it tight. So that when it, when it crawls around on the web, building this sticky spiral and eating away the scaffolding spiral, it actually ends up in the center, surrounded by a perfect clean spiral. And the spiral distances are matched to the prey that it wants to catch. So there, you know, if it catches the species, or actually even a particular individual, you can train it to make it narrower, because if the prey is smaller, then, and it's too wide, it will escape. Too much will fly right through. And that was a student project in Oxford some years back now. Now, the web has evolved. We call it often frozen behavior. So in the web, you can actually read what the animal was doing over the period of building. You can't, of course, you don't see the detours, but you see the structure of the web. This is a web we photographed in Australia some years back. Um, but you can do also do experiments. Now, these experiments affect both the silk, and the silk itself has an effect on the engineering, and it affects the behavior of the animal. I will first show you an experiment where we influence the behavior. We also influenced inadvertently slightly the material, but it's mostly the behavior. This is a very fine web. It's actually more accurate. It's more finer. It's, it's, it's better spun statistically than a normal web. The spider made less errors. It's absolutely perfect. And this is a terrible web. Now, in both cases, the same spider on different days. And it was given drugs. <laughs> and one drug, and then it obviously had a little bit of a recovery period. 
and then, then another drug. And the drugs were uh, LSD and caffeine. And it, I show you which is the drug you must have at all costs avoid. <laughs> um, because caffeine is really not very good for spiders. Whereas LSD, they can focus better somehow. <laughs> Those were experiments actually quite important. They were done in the 60s by a professor of pharmacology, and I worked with him in Chapel Hill in uh, North Carolina in America. And of course, the point was to use spider web building as a bioassay, because finding traces of drug, for example, in the urine of patients, Vietnam War veterans or whatever, or uh, you know, actually uh, schizophrenic, was, they were very interested in schizophrenic or, or polar disorder people. And it turns out that you could pick out certain, certain drugs by feeding the urine to spiders and then checking on the web and you see certain uh, changes in the web pattern and that then was correlated to a drug that you could feed. Now this is the common garden spider I just wanted to show it to you and I'll show you the web building behavior now but in, in, in color just to give you an idea. So the spider is exploring the area. Now it found the other twig, it woke up, they're still exploring and now it puts in the radials the spokes, this is just the detours, I'm just showing you the path, There's the other spiral, uh, the scaffolding spiral, now the sticky spiral uh, from the outside in. This is one common garden spider, you know it, you see it in your web, in the autumn is the best time to see it in your garden. Now this is a totally different type of spider, closely related, totally different engineering as you can imagine. There is the web, and now let's run the spider. This is just filming the spider uh, and looking at the track of the spider. It's obviously not real time. This takes about four hours, four, six hours, whereas the other spider actually does it very fast in about 20 minutes or so. Now, this is an interesting web because imagine the web turned around on its head, and you might have seen it. Uh, this is the Munich tent. The Munich tent, uh, 72. Was the, the, so it was built in 71, I think, was designed according to this particular spider. And the architect actually admitted to it, whereas the dome, London Dome, was also designed according to a spider. There's another spider, I won't show it. Uh, and the architect says, no, nothing to do with me. Uh, I've never seen this spider, but if you look at the two, I should have actually put this in there. Very, very similar. Of course, very different sizes. but. Why I'm saying this? Because the structures of the webs are incredibly good um, lightweight structures, tent structures. They're really very good. And the material is extremely well adapted to making these lightweight structures. So we can learn a lot about it. We can learn a lot from spiders because not only do they make interesting webs, but they also make interesting materials, silks. Now, here you see a big hairy thing in its web. Uh, the ancestors 400 million years ago would have looked very similar. There's another one on there. That's also a spider. There's another one. That lives as a parasite on this one. Crawls down and drinks when the big one catches something and just sucks off the juices. Now that one also makes silk. Those are just two extremes. And there are about, we think about 50,000 different spider species around. We, we know already 35,000. We're always missing some. So we figure 50,000 different spiders. They make, on average, I think, five different types of silk with a lot of variability. So you can see 
the incredible diversity of materials that are out there that we can study and, and hopefully co-opt to help us with whatever we want to do. So there's a lot of very, very interesting materials out there. Now, why are they interesting? And I will talk about that a little bit and what can they do. But before I talk about that, just a little bit about the evolution. So the first spiders came out of the water about 400 million years ago, made little burrows to maybe to prevent themselves from drowning when they were flooding. And then eventually they made little hidey holes because they're also part of an arms race. Either another spider could come and chase them or a wasp could later could come and chase them. So they're quite clever, even these quite ancestral spiders. Another one then evolved a little sock that it, it lives in the hole. It has that sock out here. It was global warming. It used to be very rare. You just can't find it big in Hill, but now it's more common in England. Now, in order to attract things to the sock, it makes it a smelly sock. It puts things in it. It's quite smelly. And flies come and other things and sit on it and it grabs them from inside and pulls them through to eat them. So it doesn't have to leave the security of its burrow. This one has another little trick. It's quite a neat one. It uh, makes a web under tension. It has a house there where it lives. The threads go down to the ground. And on the ground, they're anchored. But they're quite weakly anchored. And they're sticky. So anything that walks along touches a thread uh, gets stuck to the thread. It starts struggling, running around a little bit, touches to another thread. Eventually, the threads break and lift it in the air. And then it hangs, totally helpless. And the spider can come in and catch it. And this works because all these threads are under tension. And now the spider, the evolution, if you wish, the beginning of the evolution of the orb web. Here's the spider in its hole. And these are the threads. They can go out miles, 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 I mean, in comparison. can go very, very far. Now, what this is, and you now suddenly realize what, the, what this is, this is, in, the, in effect, an extension of the body of the spider. The spider is quite small, but these are like legs to it, because it has a leg on them. And the vibrations are actually sensed. It can sense the vibration and can even sometimes sense what it is that touches the web. And then it can rush out, overpower it, and go back. And it's cheap. If it had long legs like that, the molting alone, the growing, I mean, and then an injury, how do you deal with this? This is really cheap material. It just goes, makes a thread, lots of thread, sits in the center. If somebody bites through a thread or destroys it, I was quite cheap, actually. And yet it can monitor an area much, much bigger. So if you were to blow, if you take a Spider-Man, let's say, my size, and you put it out there and say, make a web, the web, the size would be of a football pitch and it would be in the middle of it. And the size, that kind of web, and given the dimension, would probably be able to catch certainly a small plane, maybe a large plane landing. And that's sort of the dimensions we're talking about. These are actually quite interesting materials, as you can imagine. And this is just the evolution. There's a huge evolution from the early spiders, this kind, into all these web structures, always extremely highly uh, adapted engineering and materials. The point of a web is, of course, that you don't see it. <laughs> Otherwise, the fly would see it and just fly around. So you make it very, very thin. The threads have to be thin so that the fly can't just fly around it. And that's already a strong selection pressure to make the material really tough, because the thinner you make it, the tougher you or the, the, the stronger you must make it. Otherwise, you just lose out. Now, I will talk a little bit about these silks, and at the very end, I will talk about these. These are just basically the, the straight threads, either the, um, the um, 
safety threads of the spider or the frame threads or the radial threads of the web. But I will also talk about a little bit about these. These are the sticky threads in the spiral. They're quite interesting. They have little droplets on them, and I'll talk a little bit about them. That's where the micro-machines live the, that you find in the aircraft carrier under the deck. Um, there's another type of stickiness, very interesting, and we'll not really talk about those. They're interesting because these fibers here, a single fiber spun from a single spinneret, because the spider has a big plate with thousands on them, about 20 nanometers in diameter. They're sort of electrospun in a funny way from the animal. So the animal can spin fibers down to 20 nanometers. This is real nanotechnology now. I mean, man is nowhere near. If they can make 100 nanometers, they're happy. I mean, really happy, seriously happy. And they can't make them into single fibers. You can only electrospin them in little mats. And they're extremely sticky, and they're sophisticated. There's a spring in there and holding fibers, and here you see the sticky, this is just a blow up of that, the sticky fibers. Extremely interesting, complex material on a nanoscale and a microscale. That the, that the spider just weave it, weaves it every day when it, uh, when it makes a web. There's really something we can learn in there. So people would get very excited if they could make anything near that. And then there's very interesting glue inside these droplets. I will not talk much about them, but they're glycoproteins, and they obviously have to stick under water because there's, this is covered by a water coat, as I will show. It's a very interesting glue that can stick under water. It's a glycoprotein, extremely sticky, because again, it has evolved in an arms race with a fly, if it's not really sticky, the fly would just not stick to it. It'll learn very quickly. It evolves some lipid or some, something that will wash off. So it's a really interesting glue. We know nothing about it. But I think medically, probably as a glue, very interesting. Now the silk I will talk about mostly before I turn this briefly. No, no, firstly I will talk about the droplets, but I, the silk I will then talk about is actually this straight line that I showed you earlier. It's the uh, safety line or the radial threads of the web. And if you make a cross-section through one of those, just a cross-section, here you see it. There are little inclusions in there. We don't exactly know what is in there, but I think it's probably self-healing material, material. So if a crack comes in here, this stuff will congeal and stop the crack. That's what we think at the moment. Uh, it has coating, quite a number of layers of coatings which are quite interesting as well. We know very little about it. But the inside really are nanofibrils going that way, and then these uh, with a filler, with a matrix filler. Now, this is a, a picture from um, Harper's Magazine, 1820 or 1830, I think. See, even then, they could, you could stick a spider in a little holder, and you could collect the silk. In this particular case, I'm not sure why they did it, other than study it. But in those days, already spider silk was used as crosshairs in optical instruments. And until the war, there's a wonderful movie from the war, actually, where they're talking about the war effort of the spider and how they use the silk to put into their, their gun, gun sights and how they blast German U-boats out of the water. It's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful film. So because the silk is very strong, very thin, very even, uh, so it's perfect for crosshairs. Um, but we use this system by sticking the spider in a holder and actually spinning from him uh, to very good effect. And I just want to show you that you can reel very, very fast. This is about 400 millimeters uh, per second. That's 
quite fast. I mean, the spider's bottom <laughs> smoke would come out of it if you reeled it down. Down to just a few micrometers per day, and it still makes a thread. So you can reel the silk over, this is six orders of magnitude, and it, all the time it makes a thread. Obviously, mechanical properties of the thread will change. This is biorefringence, just degree of orientation, but it gives you an, a, an idea about the mechanical properties. And obviously, where it's perfect, where it's natural spinning speed at its best, but you can spin very slowly, very slowly, or very fast, and it always makes a fiber. Now we use this system, therefore, obviously we have a motor here and all sorts of fancy things. I will briefly talk about that, but we use this to actually study the material. I said that there's more than one silk to all spiders. This is a common garden spider, has actually seven different silks. So one spider, seven different silks for different purposes. The one that we are mostly interested in, obviously, is the drag line, safety line, or radial uh, silk. Uh, the cement is quite interesting. The glue, I will briefly talk about, is very interesting. Then it makes a cocoon, something inside. Plenty of silks. Those are the glands. They look quite different. Uh, and the material inside is extremely different. Now, but why is the material so interesting? It's six times stronger than steel, weight for weight. Not surprising, steel is quite heavy. Eight times more extensible in Kevlar, so it's quite stretchy, so that's why you don't want to make a bulletproof vest with it. But because it's so stretchy, it's also five times tougher than Kevlar. So Kevlar is the best man-made fiber. So we've got this little thing that's five times tougher already. It functions well between minus 150. We couldn't go higher. It still was going up. So if I'm sure it functions still at minus 200 or not 250, but our machine couldn't go any lower, sorry, up to about 150. That's when it begins to melt. Uh, it has torsional shape memory. I don't, I'm not going to talk about this, but that's something we don't really understand. But there's a couple of, of alloys can have that, metal alloys. But normal materials don't have this shape memory. It may swell in water. That is an advantage, disadvantage. We'll talk about that briefly. It's biocompatible. Ha, interesting. It's biodegradable. Ha, ha, also very interesting. And it's chemically decorated already by the spider, so we can decorate it. Now, these last ones, obviously, are quite interesting for biomedical purposes because it uh, is biocompatible. You can plant it. We've done it. Uh, no, no worries. Um, it eventually will degrade. Uh, the question is, can we tune it? Can we get the biodegradability when we want it and far long we want it? And we can decorate it. And again, I said it's a really interesting material. We have the silkworm cocoon here. You remember this from the first or second slide. Here's the spider drag line. Here's wool, viscose rayon, teclon, nylon, polypropylene glass, and Kevlar would be something like that, very, very stiff. I mean, it goes, goes up, but it's very stiff, very brittle. So all of these are really poor materials in comparison to spiders. If this is what you want, if you want extensibility and great strength at the same time, then that's the material to go for. Now, the so goal is, obviously, can we build a machine that does it all, that build up, builds us the web using all the wonderful things? Actually, by the way, I don't know whether you know this, but the spider toxin gave the first indications about beta blockers. The beta blockers were evolved from uh, a study of spider toxins. So that makes nice spider toxins. Uh, and then, obviously, we're interested particularly in this device here, the spinning device. Can we copy that 
and if we can copy it, what would be what would be we'd be using it for? Now, before I talk about that, um, I will talk a little bit about this micro machine that I've been taunting you with. Now, if you look at the the sticky thread of a common garden spider, there's little droplets on there. They're quite evenly distributed. How did they get there? And what do they do? You can focus larger. And if you look inside a droplet, you see there's a little thread reeled up in the little droplets. And the way it works is like this. So you have the little droplets here. Um, so you can look inside one droplet. And then you can stretch. And it reels out and it reels back in. And it's driven by the surface tension of the water, which is very strong. The surface tension of the water wants to make a perfect droplet. And if it's pulled out of shape, it wants to go back into the round shape. And this, of course, each of these droplets has one of these micro-machines in it. So you can see that's quite a clever system to get rid of kinetic energy, to keep, make sure that the threads are always under tension. They can never sag. However windy it is, they're always nicely tense. Because if they sag, they would glue together, and big holes would appear, and flies could fly right through there. Now, but how, is, how does the spider make it? And this is actually also quite an interesting one. It uses a little phenomenon that Lord Rayleigh uh, described in uh, 1892 or something. Um, it has a core fiber that is a normal silk fiber. And then on both sides, it has glands that put on a very hygroscopic liquid, which happens to be a neurotransmitter, because neurotransmitters are very hygroscopic. But I mean, this is weird. <laughs> I don't go into details, but that's what it does. It uses a neurotransmitter as a hygroscopic cover of its silk. And eventually, you see this. You see the droplets and inside, you see the glue, the, the glycoprotein glue that if you pull the thread away, they're very, very sticky glue. And you see this micro machine if you go, uh, if you put it together. Now I will show you how it is assembled, how it self-assembles by the spider. Now. This is a thread, a piece of thread that I take out of the web. So I have a web in the lab. The spider is building the spiral. I go with my calipers right after the bum of the spider. And I take, quickly take a piece of thread, put it right under the microscope in lab uh, conditions, which is quite dry, about 50% humidity. And it is highly hygroscopic. These neurotransmitters, GABA and taurine and so on, very hygroscopic. They take out water from the atmosphere, even in dry atmosphere. And what happens is they swell, become unstable, and form droplets. Now, I will show you this in real life. This is real life, a uh, real time, sorry. There we go. It just swells, becomes unstable, droplets inside. As soon as you pull it inside, you have this thing. And <coughs> it's always in balance with the environment. So it's a really clever, self-assembling micro-machine and each web has about two, three, four, five thousand of them in there. So it's quite a clever way of dealing with kinetic energy uh, and uh, extensibility. Now, you can go even further. You can be a really lazy spider and use this thing to your advantage. This is the Berlus spider. It used to build its ancestors, maybe 150 million years ago, used to build webs. And then it got really lazy and gave up building a web. It just makes one fiber with glue. So inside that fiber, inside this glue droplet, is a very long thread. And it swings it around. But to actually help 
its chances of attracting something, it exudes a pheromone from its foot. And that pheromone has stinky feet, effectively. But that pheromone is extremely attractive to the moth, to the male of a moth, which thinks that's a female because it smells like a female and tries to mate with the leg, whilst the spider just swings around this sticky thing and catches it. <laughs> so it's a really clever way of conserving the energy of building a web using this glue system that has evolved in order to do something very different, i.e. to work as little droplets in the web. And here you see one of these droplets uh, with a lot of thread inside. You can see when you swing it, it goes very long. And as soon as you stop swinging, it shrinks together as a little droplet at the end of your foot. Now, I said silk is a really interesting material, and I will now turn to the, to, to the silk and talk a little bit about it. Uh, it operates on a number of scales. This would be a thread. Or, no, this would be a microfibril inside a thread. A thread will have many little microfibrils, and in these fibrils, you have uh, a nanoscale, which is the folding of the protein. It's a protein. Um, you have a, a microscale, which is a number of folded proteins that act together uh, all inside the thread. And when you stretch it, in effect, what you do, you first uncoil the proteins a little bit like a spring, and then eventually you stretch them, and you stretch them even more. You begin to break hydrogen bonds. In effect, what's happening here, these are all hydrogen bonded. And when you stretch, you work against the bonds. And they they're break, and they reform. And the whole thing is actually curable. You take a thread, you stretch it a long way, and it would sag unless it has a micro-machine. But if you put it in water, it just memorize the positions it should be in. It, it shrink together. Because that's the minimum energy uh, position with all the hydrogen bonds properly formed. These are enormous mo molecules. If you know anything about molecules, it's about 400 kilodalton, really big molecules. And of course, because it's, it's made by an organism, it's a protein, every building block, every amino acid, and there's quite a number of them, a relatively sophisticated way, is exactly where it should be to give the, the, the best folding pattern, i.e. the strongest uh, material. Now, there are many ways of studying them. We're using uh, one of them that we're using is X-ray diffraction. And very briefly to remind you, you just basically have a very, very strong beam, light beam. This is X-ray. Uh, you can use another light, for example, laser. So you put your molecule in there, and the light will uh, scatter over it. And on the, on the back of your, you have a film or a camera, you get a pattern. You deconvolute that pattern, and it'll tell you something about the structure. So you have a crystal. You get the X-ray pattern. You can study it, and it gives you an idea about the densities. And you can then make an atomic model of the material. It's quite important if you try to understand why the material is so strong. And if we want to copy it, we better understand how it works. Now, now back to fun. How do we use this? We can use other. We can use uh, Raman scattering or uh, uh, infrared uh, FTIR scattering to look at different aspects of the molecule. So here we have our spider. This is a high-tech version of this old reeling, re wooden reeling Harpo's reel that I showed you earlier. Here's the spider. It sits on a little uh, thermostat, I mean, on, on some support, which we could heat or cool simply by pumping hot or cold oil through it. We have a spindle, and we can reel fast or slow. So the whole thing is about this big, small, not much bigger than this, with the spider on it. 
So I take it in my pocket and I go down to Grenoble to the X-ray, to the synchrotron, stick it in the X-ray beam. They have a beam which actually focuses down to submicron nowadays. And I just look at it and I can change the reeling condition. So this is my extruder. This is my, 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 um, my plant. My, uh, not, not plant as, uh, as, as vegetable plant, but as industrial plant, my extruder. I take it with me and I study the extrusion system and I can reel slowly, faster and faster, and I can look at the, at the X-ray diffraction pattern, deconvolute it, and it tells me something about the crystallite size and how the crystals inside are distributed and what the material looks like, and I can do this both on the nanoscale and on the mesoscale. And this is a, a wax pattern. So I can do this over different uh, reeling speeds. And this is temperature, so I heat and cool the spider up. And look how that affects the material properties. Or I can change the reeling speed. Look, the drastic differences. That's the normal reeling speed of the spider. Really nice pattern. And as soon as you go up, like now really this thing is smoking at its bottom, 60 centimeters per second, like that. And this is a water halo. It can't, the material can't fold properly. It can't push the water out. So it makes a soap that is quite different. And if you look at the mechanical properties, the reeling speed, and this is just breaking strength, so the strength of the material, you see that uh, the, the strain goes down and the strength goes up with reeling speed. So reeling speed has an effect on the mechanical properties that we can study. And we can also, at the same time, time study very accurately what happens inside uh, the fiber and therefore what happens to the protein when we uh, produce it differently. Now, here you see the gland. This is the major gland that we mostly study. There's the material is inside. The spider puts the material up in front, and then it spins it out on demand. Uh, this is a schema, schemata of it. So basically, of this, the duct, here it goes. And people always thought, ah, oh, there's a little press there. That's where the, the spider forms. And then it's just a, sort of a nozzle that it can wave around a little bit. But if you cut it somewhere here, so obviously there should still be full with material. If you cut it there, actually what you see is that inside the, the silk is already formed there. Now, oops, but that thing is way back there. So it's not a normal spinning device. It's very different from a normal spinning. It's not just pushing it through a nozzle. Actually what happens that the silk forms way up here, comes off the wall, and self-assembles into that thread, way up inside. And all of this is where the silk is then coated. So it happens really early. It's a totally unusual spinning device, uh, unusual to anything that we've known. Um, and it obviously uh, allows the silk to be coated. And it obviously is a self-assembling device. It doesn't need this hole. And because it was totally novel, of course, we patented it, and now we have a company that does things with that. And we'll talk about that briefly in a minute. Um, and that's effectively how we think it works. It's a liquid crystalline spinning device, just like Kevlar, only it's a protein that's liquid crystalline spun with water as a solvent, ambient temperature, and ambient pressure. Yet it makes fibers that are five times better than Kevlar. So it's really interesting if we could copy it. Uh, the uh, molecules are tightly folded pushed into the lumen of the gland by the cells, uh, then they're 
they flow up here, they begin to unfold up here because there's a small pH shift of about 6.7 to 6.4. Tiny little pH shift, they unfold, they align, and they cross them or form hydrogen bonds, and you have the fiber inside. Quite a clever system, and I will briefly uh, show you how we think it works. You have two proteins there. The one has a long, uh, a long, uh, medium-sized soft bed and a short hard bed, and the other one has a longer soft bed and a very short hard bed. Uh, and they interact, and now you have their first in a random coil inside the duct, then they compact, they aggregate, and then when you have the stress where they, they flow, they make the bonds, new bonds, and then eventually they make this, this little silk uh, molecule, and this is basically a fiber, and inside you have these microfibrils of this nano, there's a really nanoscale uh, composite, therefore very, very topical. And there's a number of different silks that you can imagine. They look quite different. The different stress-strain characteristics compare to different inside structure, to different micro, nano, and meso, and microstructure. So those are different from different spiders, but also from the same spider, by changing the spinning conditions, we can actually change the mechanical properties, as I showed earlier. And that's because inside it forms a different nano and microstructure. Now, if you wet it, if you really wet it, like here, super contracted, even more, you really wet it, it swells, it takes up water, um, and it, be, it keeps its ultimate strength, but the me mechanical properties really change. So this is very important because if we want to use it for the biomedical purposes, obviously we put it in the body, it's wet engineering, it will get wet, it will change mechanical properties, it will contract and pull together. It has advantages, but maybe also disadvantages, something to consider. Well, if we want to use it, how do we get it, the material? Well, we could have lots and lots of spiders Take one, lots, and we're real. Now this was done in the mid uh, 18th century, 1750 uh, or so. The French had a factory done in Madagascar to make silk for gloves because it's very good material. The problem is that spiders are cannibals, and if you let them out, they eat each other. So very quickly, they ended up with a few fat spiders, and, <laughs> and in effect, your production system had broken down. So we can't really use that. Um, and now we come to the biomedical version. So if we want to have silk, spider silk, we have to make it somehow. Uh, we're in the process of doing that. I will briefly talk about it. We can harvest it from spiders for experimental purposes, or we can find silks that are very, very similar and that we can buy. Now, little Miss Muffet, um, actually, it's a funny poem, but it turns out that around that time, 1750, there was a chap called Moffat, who was a doctor, and he ten tended to prescribe spiders to his patients, that they should eat spiders, and that was very good for them, um, for various reasons, and it's all hearsay, and, but there is enough hearsay to believe that there was a Mr. Moffat, uh, who, uh, Moffat, who did things for spiders, so apparently somebody then thought, well, let's turn it into a little poem. But what I found, actually, also is a German uh, paper from the Braunschweigische Anzeigen. Actually, the year that this organization 
was first founded, the, 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 what was it called? The, the Company of Surgeons. That very year was founded. It's all about spider silk and how the English are crazy doing stuff and feeding it to various people about various things. But I found that I haven't gotten yet the copy. Actually, there is somebody else now going very hyper about this and saying, oi, wait a minute. It doesn't work to eat it. It's not good against your fever, but it's really good as wound dressing. It's really top stuff. And it's been used as wound dressing for a very long time. So when are these August buildings, as it were, were first started? Were you, oh, you were over at the Bailey, actually. That's right, in the you. OK. <laughs> um, that's when the discussion whether we should be using spider silk and how we should, we should be using that actually turned up in the uh, medical um, fraternity. Now, Much Much Newer is a little spin-out company that we did after we discovered how the spider spins and that it was patentable, and we got actually a patent on it. So not only can we spin the fibers, but what can we do with these fibers? Because they are so tough, and they are biocompatible. So we st started a company called Oxford Biomaterials that makes suture thread, can make stents and things, neuroregeneration, various other uh, cell cultures. And I will very briefly talk about that because uh, it is quite interesting. So first, we spun out a company from that called Spintech Engineering that uses this flow, flow elongation of the spider to uh, liquid, crystalline, uh, liquid crystalline feedstock, it's a protein, to spin actually silks that we can use. Hopefully. There's the machine, there's a patent, there's a tiny little machine. Oh, ultimately, we want to have it on the chip. The mechanical properties are not very good yet, but by post-stretching, you can make them better. This is still some way to go, uh, to make it artificially. At the moment, it would use the feedstock from a worm, so it is the real stuff, but ultimately, you would like genetically modified material. I don't know whether you know about this company that put the genes, the spider silk genes, into a goat and then made milk, that has silk milk, if you wish. And then they extracted the protein from that. The problem is they used the wrong gene. I showed you earlier there's two genes. They used the wrong one, the weak one, the really stretchy one. Too late by the time they discovered that, so they went bust. But in the meantime, I think their value oscillated between 40 million and 400 million, and then they went bust because they chose the wrong gene for their goats. Anyway, but that's not the way forward anyway. It'd be always too expensive, I think, to use genetically modified silk. It's better to understand it and design it from scratch. Now we then have another spin-out company that may be interesting. It's doing, it's very interesting. It's together with uh, uh, my group uh, and the company and uh, Queen Mary. And this is called Neurotexas for nerve repair. And here you see spider silk, and you see the nerve cells just growing along it. Spider silk has RGD in it, so it's a little peptide, and mammalian cells really love that. They really stick to it, and they grow along it. So they love these nerves. Now, what we then did is make bundles of silk and put a little sleeve around them, and then if you have a nerve that's been cut, uh, you can actually stick the one bit of the nerve. You cut it cleanly on both sides. You stick one bit in one end of your little sleeve, the other in the other, and the nerves will grow right through this bundle. And this is actually the cross-section in the middle of a bundle of two nerves, where the nerves will grow and join on the other side. And you see the silk is yellow, and you see the nerve uh, 
labeled green. So it actually does work. So you can actually make nerve repair using spider silk, and it's very, very promising, actually. Very interesting. It's quite a young company, only about a year old, but it seems to be going all right. Now, another project we're doing is bone repair again. It's quite an interesting one. As you know, bone is, in effect, a mineral, which is not a very good mineral, together with collagen, which is not a very good elastomer. But the two together are really unbeatable. It's a clever way how nature uses two pretty shitty materials to make one super material by combining the two. Now, because collagen is not very good under tension, we're using silk instead of collagen, mix it with hydroxyapatite, make little, little sponges with that, and then look at how cells will grow. And they grow very well in this material. We have a big grant together with uh, Steve Mann from, from Bristol to actually make uh, bone implants. And they're very interesting, and they really are extremely interesting, and they're much tougher than anything else on the market. The question, of course, is how will it perform in the wet environment? <laughs> it's always the test, because it ultimately has to go in the wet environment. Now, another one, we have a big grant called, stupidly called Spider-Man, um, to make, actually, to repair uh, ligaments. Again, you can see why spider silk, which is so tough, would be brilliant if you could use where you have a ligament broken or a tendon. You just re replace it with a material. It's very tough, which then would slowly uh, uh, be, in a way, integrated into the body. And actually, a friend of of ours in America is doing it slightly differently. Uh, Kaplan is the only other people that work on this kind of spider silk in the world, actually. And he is making ropes, if you wish, of reconstituted bombic silk. He buys the silk or uses old knickers or whatever silk knickers, stick them in a vat with a strong acid, break it all down, dialyze it, and then you can spin it out into fibers, which themselves have not very good quality silk. Fibers is regenerated. But if you make strong ropes, you seed them with stem cells, you put them in a vat, and you tell the stem cells that they're in the ligament by just pulling and twisting, pulling and twisting, pulling and twisting. Then they become ligament cells, and whoops, you have a ligament. Now, he moved incredibly fast in this area because he employed two PhD students, both ex-football players in America, with buggered ligaments. And they really wanted, by the time they had their PhD, they wanted to have a ligament that they could implant. So they worked extremely hard, and they actually have them now on the market. So I understand it. So it, it does work. Then you can use uh, potentially the silk for vascular repair, quite an interesting one. You can see how complex this is and how you need in order to repair it. Quite tough uh, materials, which themselves are, are composites as silks are. We actually have a little project for a heart repair. I call it heart repair. Basically, spider silks, you put uh, uh, heart cells on it. and then they grow very nicely, thank you, and eventually they become even to beads. They go dunk, 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 dunk. So the little spider silk will actually start uh, to beat because that's, of course, what the cells do, and the silk is just pliant enough to operate together with them. So quite interesting. There's lots of future uh, for this, uh, we hope. I mean, the question I'm sure will come of how close are we? Well, some of, the, of these experiments, these materials are an animal trial. Some of them are, I think, very close to clinical trial. Others are far, far removed still from, from clinical trial. But you know, how old is silk as a medical use? I mean, this is some sort of petroglyph of a spider's web. And so I mean, they knew about it, obviously. And it is good stuff. You put it on, it really is very good. And if you have not much else to put on the wound, you'd go for a spider silk. So that's why 
you know, I would even speculate that Neanderthal would have used spider silk to put it on to, to uh, still blood, because it does, because it's very fine lines, so it, it really does help clotting. Plus, which is interesting, is biocidal, because the spider does not want microbes to live in its, in, in its silk, and therefore it has little uh, 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 biocides in it. That's another way of using silk. You just go and you make yourself a, a butterfly net. Uh, that's Papua New Guinea, and he uses it for fishing. These are uh, the people uh, in my lab, and we collaborate. And there's a totally different use for silk, and this is in bondage. Uh, uh, the female spider, she's quite aggressive. Males ten tends to be much smaller. She'd like to eat him after mating. So be before mating, he ties her down in silk. And then he mates, <laughs> has his wicked ways, and then he rushes off. And uh, that's another way. Well, thank you very much indeed for your patience. scratch but we can we can copy, can copy by using the uh, proteins that are very similar to spider silk yes. and then spinning them in a very specific way they have to be spun in a specific way you can't use normal spinning conditions because it's highly viscous uh, you can't push it you can't heat it up because it's protein and it's denatured straight there yeah. it'll cook uh, you can't use nasty chemicals because, again, it is denature. You have to use water. And therefore, you have to move it slowly and allow the molecules to unfold, refold, and align. But in order to do that, you have to have the, the right molecules. That's really the trick. And the spider has the right molecules. The silkworm has the right molecules. They behave very, very similarly in studies although they're not related. Spider silk and silkworm silk are not related. If they are through some worm that was you know, 600 million years ago in the water. Yes. So they independently found a similar way of making, the same way of making similar molecules and spinning them in a similar way to make these fibers. And only if we understand it can we copy it. And then we can design the one, sorry. Yes. How much success have you had Um, the people that are making the proteins are really struggling because they're in enormously big proteins 
really bad. Very difficult. Very, very difficult. Huge proteins, very repetitive. Now, that also is very difficult. So if you want to use genetic engineering, as soon as it gets repetitive, the organism, the, the yeast that makes beer or what, thinks, oh my god, this is a virus, and, and just kills it all. Because it's too repetitive, too long. So it's really tricky to do it uh, that way. It. Yeah. So mammalian cells, the goats, is one way. But again, they couldn't really get the whole protein in. So nobody can do it. But if we can understand it, what we think we might be able to, to do is design shorter ones that will already make an acceptable fiber. So you speak, you speak about the spinal cord and right. repairs the spinal right. cord. How far have you got that? Ah, now that's a slightly different, I should have mentioned that. What we do there is we use a particular type of worm silk, nothing to do with these I talked about, and we modify it to become a spider silk. So that stuff is cheap. We have piles of it because we make it, but not using the spider silk. But if we could make artificial spider silk in quantity, then uh, we could make it even better. But, but we can already make it uh, well enough for this kind of purposes. You have used it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was real data. Unbelievable. Yeah, that was real data from That's right nice. experiments. Yeah. yeah. Experiment. It was a PR experiment. Repeat the question. Ah, the question was NASA sent up uh, spiders. I was in 62 in the space lab. Uh, three spiders. They had names, <laughs> interesting names. And uh, they did build, one of them did build webs. The webs were not normal, but then the spider died. Now, this is an interesting insight into how NASA works is they actually had an advert at a science week in America and say, think of a crazy experiment. And one 11-year-old girl said, spiders in space. And NASA said, great, let's do it. <laughs> and they didn't really think any further about it. And then when you know, the time came, they said, oops. So they're ringing around, where can we get some spiders? So this friend of mine, actually did the drug experiments, because he worked for the government, gave them three spiders. Uh, told them how to look after them, but they forgot the, f the food for them. They didn't take any flies or anything. So they shot them up in space, had them in their little cages, and uh, then they started feeding them steak. And, and, you know, <laughs> I weird. But one of them actually <coughs> built a few webs, but they were unusual. And I think what happened, the spider was dehydrating. So it, but they were very even. Uh, a bit messy. The spider was obviously not extremely well, and then it died. But they never collected the silk and took it back. I mean, it's typical for this big experiment. Very interesting experiment. I mean, they could withstand this. And I repeated some of the experiments actually in my lab. It was interesting how the effect of gravity, because I can't make them lighter, zero gravity, but I can make them heavier. So I built a centrifuge in the lab for them to build. And they built up to 13G. They were still building webs. I mean, they're really tough. 13G, they're still, well, they're small, so it's a different, slightly scaling is different. But yeah, 13G, they're still building webs. They look more like the caffeine webs. I mean, they weren't perfect, but they were building. You had a question. Yeah.
known for a very long time about the healing properties of the grapes or uh, the wounds and so on. But has anyone actually extracted those qualities which from the silk, which are, he are the healing properties? No. There, there are a number of compounds in there. Some of them are clearly toxins in order to make sure that bacteria and so would grow. Then you have a 5 molar solution of neurotransmitters, and that's pretty rough stuff, if you wish, and it really sucks everything dry, including lead bacterium or so. But we're just looking with a group at the medical, in the hospital in Hamburg on whether there are actually some of these micropeptides in there. You know that nowadays everybody's talking about these really little peptides that are quite interesting. So it looks like there may be, but we don't know. Yeah. So there may be extra compounds in there other than just the normal, you know, bactericides, so that we know. But those are also there. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you about rejection, but of course, if you're not actually using the spider silk, but the silver um, protein, yeah. so I presume that they're going to be made um, that they, they will not be treated as a foreign body. Same thing, both. Both of these, of, uh, under both pyrogenicity testing and biocompatibility testing. I did the spider six first, a long time ago, actually. And they're fine. And these other materials, obviously, also, they have to be fine, otherwise, might as well not think about it. No, no. They're both fine. A question on the far right. Did I misuse, did I misuse, tell us, how the actual silk is extruded. Is it muscular? Is it hydraulic? Uh, it's pulled. Is it just pulled Pultrusion. by being attached? Pultrusion. The spider just goes, eh, and then it pulls it, it and then it, either with its foot pulls it out, or it attaches it, and then walks away. The same the silkworm, it goes, and glues it down, and then pulls away. So it's pultrusion. It's non-Newtonian flow, so the energy... I mean, it's really a very, very interesting engineering uh, uh, trick because they're tiny, tiny fibres that it has to make. And pulling gives you a different flow diagram than pushing it through, and that helps a lot already in the alignment. So it's pulled, simply pulled. And people always thought it's pushed through. That's why the first mistake. And if you look at the stuff, it's so viscous, it just wouldn't work. It'll just jumble up straight away and and cooking off, because then the animal would be dead if it has a plug of silk. Silk, in effect, actually, this is also, I mean, I won't even go into the details here, but it is like a big amyloid or prion or alpha-synuclein. It's, in effect, it's, it's a really tightly folded protein. But, of course, here, the spider wants to make these amyloids. It's enormous amyloid, if you wish, or a prion. So it's very interesting. We, we're looking at the... Uh, at the similarities between the silks, and there are very, very many similarities. So, so yeah. It's extruded from a blob. It's extruded from a blob. From a blob. You can take the blob out and then either put it through your teeth and make a <coughs> fishing line or just have it and then go with a needle and just pull. You do the same with the silkworm, actually. Just take a silkworm, take the gland out, just pull a, a line then from it. Yeah. A good more questions. I know we have at the back. Yes. Yes. Uh, do they follow a particular pattern? Or it's yeah, yeah. They they follow a pattern. Um, it's genetic. We modelled it, and we actually had a robot, a real 
robot will make a web one just because we were curious to see whether we understood it. Very few rules. Uh, an angle, a little bit of an angle, uh, and distance measurements. It goes like a handrail, it goes like that, and then, you know. Uh, very simple, and uh, yeah, and you know, you can just, if you cool it down, it changes this a little bit. And different spiders have different patterns. Is it anyways related to the Fibonacci series or the golden ratio? No, no. Or it's just a random spider? No, it's not random, it's because it's tuned to the size of the web. The perfect way of catching an object of a given size, if you don't know where the object is in relation to you, is make a spiral with a particular size. That was actually calculated, two big fat books on that one, by the British in the war uh, of how to catch a submarine that missed shooting the destroyer down. So then they said, well, what do we do? We have depth charges. So how do we get this submarine? Sitting somewhere there, obviously within you know, half a kilometer. So and then what they came up with is the submarine is a given size and it could be any direction. Then you, you go around in a spiral of a given size, dropping your depth charges at a given distance and you should hit it. And that's exactly what the spider does. <laughs> and I think perhaps um, a couple He just kept them in a little vial until they were grown ups. I mean, nasty experiment, you know, if you love spiders. So he kept them in there for half a year and then he let them out, and the first web was good. I didn't learn. So it just set of rules. For example, the, the peasants out there, the farmers would use it. In America, they will use it. All over the world, they will use it. So it is a folk medicine. I think time is ticking on. Uh, I know people's hands are still going up, but if everyone's happy, perhaps we'll just take these last two questions and then uh, we'll um, go into the evening. That's uh, fine by everybody else. So the lady in, in the side and then the gentleman at the front. Um, you said that. So they interlinked. 
And inside, you have a thread. And when you pull, the thread gets stretched. And then normally you have hysteresis, so it, it would sag. But in this particular case, it's pulled in. And therefore, they hang together because there is a water, uh, a very thin water coat between the different droplets. They're all interlinked. They're not totally separate. Then, they, of course, then it would not work. No. But because they're interlinked, you have the water left. There may be chemicals in the water that also make it very, very viscous, in addition to the neurotransmitters. I don't know. That's the explanation we have at the moment. Yes. Um, I talk about me. My surgeon says to me, my feet, my feet are in pain all the time. So I said to him, what shall I do about it? He said, there's nothing I can do about it anymore. Right. You have to get on with it. So I said, oh, right. So is there any help that you could say in time that that situation, my nerves in my feet, are the nerves? Died? Yeah, no, now that's a really tricky one. You know, when a nerve is dead, it's really difficult. But if you have a nerve that's just cut by a knife, then both, wounds, both sides are life, of course, and it grows. Only the point is you want to grow them together. Yes. yes. And then they will merge, and the nerve can fire along it again. So that's, that you can do, uh, that one can do, and that this material can do other materials, I should think, as well. Uh, but that does it very well. But if you have a nerve that is just dying or has died, uh, then I think, I don't know what you do, probably put growth hormone in, on it or somebody and try to get it to grow out. But once it doesn't know, once it doesn't have a conduit of where to grow, that makes it really tricky for the nerve. It just grow any old way. But when you have a thread there, and it, it will grow along the thread, <laughs> and then it end up somewhere. <laughs> so put in a, some spider webs, yeah. <coughs> Hopefully. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much to Professor Volbach again. If we could just show our appreciation.